It's so good to be here with you guys this morning. And um, don't tell anyone, but 8.30 is my favorite. <laughs> um, it's good to see everybody up early. And, and we're getting near the Christmas uh, holiday, a week from today, right? It's Christmas Eve. And I was thinking about how I remember as a kid the awe that I would have every year during the holidays. And as a child, it was almost like time slowed this time of year, right? It seems a little different as an adult way different, but as a kid, there was something about the lights and the decorations and the snow. We're kind of missing that this year, but the years of a white Christmas would make my heart giddy, and I don't know if anyone appreciates snow like me and my sister do. I don't think anyone does. (laughs) There's a few of us, okay. But um, also the traditions of this time of year, every family seems to have their own unique sets of traditions. And you know, there was a time when I didn't know that not every family got excited about Cheese Ball Eve. (laughs) Turns out Cheese Ball Eve celebrations are much more rare. Um, But one reason I loved Christmas as a little girl was because it was another year that hope rose up in me that maybe this year. You see, as a little girl, I'd be dreaming every year and wondering if this was the year I would get a horse for Christmas. (laughs) Would I wake up to the saddle under the tree and the horse in the backyard, having no concept that this reality would be near impossible for a military family that moved around a lot, living in base housing with not so sizable backyards. (laughs) But I have great memories of the Christmas season as a child. And as I've grown and I've experienced life, I've grown more familiar with the complexities and and the internal tensions of the holidays at times and of Christmas. And what is in the forefront a lot, the most this time of year, is the celebration, is the parties. It's about the beauty of family and friends being brought together and it's that Hallmark movie holiday image, right? And all those things are wonderful things about this time of year, and we can love all of that. And I do love all of that. (laughs) But also, many in life carry a weight of grief and loss and sorrow and suffering that for some reason can feel a little bit heavier this time of year. And grief and sorrow feels like they're an outsider to all of the joys that the holiday should entail, right? And so maybe you're like me and you try to box up and you try to wrap up those griefs and the sorrows and the hard things in life and you, you try to just set them aside for the, for the moment. And I'm never successful with that. And my family's here, and you can ask my family, even in a literal sense, I'm never good at wrapping anything (laughs) nice and neat and pretty. My nephews will call out my gifts, wrapped by Sarah, (laughs) wrapped by Sarah. (laughs) But I just want to challenge us today that the things that feel heavier in our hearts this season, let's not push them aside this Christmas holiday. But let's take the time to see them overlaid within the context of the Christmas story. 
So what does the Christmas story mean for the places of my heart, of your heart, that feels the extra weight of grief or sorrow this holiday season? What does the Christmas story mean for the places of my heart that feels like it will never get used to navigating a holiday season without my mom? What does the Christmas story mean for my friend with a difficult health diagnosis or the one struggling financially? What does the Christmas story mean for the families of my community of Medical Lake, who a year ago would have never imagined that by next Christmas their lives would look entirely different and they'd be celebrating the holidays in a living room that is not their own, having lost everything to fire. What does the Christmas story mean for our brothers and our sisters in parts of the world that are war-torn and full of greater persecution than we can even imagine right now? And so what does the Christmas story mean for the grief and the sorrows and the suffering we experience in this life today as we have a deep longing for things to be different? And while Jesus, he was born in a time and a place in a community with the same longings. And we're going to see how Jesus came and was the source of longings fulfilled, but as well, he came and was the source of, of longings, new longings being stirred and ignited in hearts and lives and communities. And so if you have your Bibles, will you turn to Luke 2? And we're going to start at verse 1, and as you pull those out, I am going to pray. Jesus, we just thank you for your word, and we just thank you for, for your presence, that you are God with us. And we just thank you that you uh, long to speak to each and every one of our hearts. You long to encourage our hearts. Um, and so we just open our hearts and our minds to hear from you today, Jesus. We just pray all that in your name. Amen. So stick with me. We're going to start in Luke 2, chapter, verse 1, and we're going to go to 20. It says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pleased to be married, who was pledged to be married, also pleased, I'm sure, um, to be married and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified." But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. 
Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So this month, we've been talking about the wonder of Christmas and, and the things in the Christmas story that stir up a sense of wonder. And there's a definition that we've been using just to remind you, the definition of wonder. As a noun, it's a, a feeling of surprise mingled with admiration caused by something beautiful, unexpected, unfamiliar, or inexplicable, unable to be explained. Or as a verb, it's the desire to be curious to know something. And so one element of the Christmas story that stirs wonder in my heart and my mind is the joy I see throughout the midst of much difficulty and hardship. Where in light of physical circumstances, when a baby arrives on the scene, it might appear as if nothing has changed. But in reality, with the birth of Jesus, everything has changed. And we see a people who experience much suffering in life also become full and overflowing with joy as the two, joy and suffering, coexist. And we read that Joseph and Mary, they returned to the small village of Bethlehem where Joseph was from to pay taxes, suffering. And while they were there, Mary gives birth, suffering, I hear, and I think sometimes when I've read the Christmas story and I've seen the nativity scene, I've viewed it in light of as if like, finally, all is right with the world. But not all was right with the world. It's this, in this time in Luke 2, King Herod ruled and he was a Ro Roman appointed king to Judea. Uh, who was all about making a name for himself and advancing a way of life that was contrary to God's ways. And Herod was known for his brutality and his paranoia of someone else taking his throne. And that was a lot of motivation uh, for a lot of cruel actions, including killing some of his own family members. And so surely in this time, life wasn't a cakewalk. And many of God's people were living under conditions of poverty and oppression. And it was a time of, of a lot of violence and robberies where feelings of safety were hard to come by, where suffering was more the norm than comfort. And even our image of the nativity scene, right? It's a little bit different than the way it actually was. Jesus wasn't born to a sterile, nice, beautiful stable. It was probably more like a cave and covered in soot and deep in manure and probably smelling pretty rank. And it was actually would be what we would describe as quite filthy and not something we'd want to recreate to decorate our homes with, right? <laughs> we clean up and we beautify 
the nativity scene quite a bit, and the smells of the season in our hand soaps and our candles are far from what we're celebrating here. And what Luke 2 is all about is that God came near. He came right in the midst of the filth. He came right into the hardship and into the pain and into the suffering and into the grief and into the sorrow. God came to it, and God entered into it. And because of that, there was much joy. And we read in in Luke 2, verse 10, the angels tell the shepherds, Do not be afraid, for I bring you good news that will cause a little bit of joy. Momentary joy. No, they said, great joy for all people. Much joy, a hope, what generations and hearts were deeply longing for, for hundreds of years has arrived. A savior who had been prophesied Like in Isaiah 9-2, a people walking in darkness has seen a great light, and those living in the land of deep, deep darkness, a light has come. And this is that moment. Or Micah 5-2, where it says, But you, O Bethlehem, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf. And this is that moment in Bethlehem. Or Isaiah 7:14 that said, The Lord Himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child, and she will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this is that moment. The virgin birth has taken place. God with us. And so the deep longings for a help for Israel and and for a comfort for Israel are being fulfilled. And the true king of the Jews is on the scene. And for those who are eyewitness to this baby born, oh, the joy, the joy, the joy. But wait, everyone had to leave that cave and return to a place of hardships and suffering and Everyone who had heard of this baby being born from the shepherds and of word of mouth and who were amazed, they still had daily hardships to face and were still oppressed and still lived in a land of much darkness, including the shadow of the paranoia of King Herod, which we read causes him to be disturbed when he heard of one being born king of the Jews in Matthew 2.3. And so sometime after Jesus' birth, Herod calls together the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he asks them, okay, where was it again? Where again was it prophesied that the Messiah would be born? Please don't say Bethlehem. Please don't say Bethlehem. (laughs) And they quote Micah 5, who prophesied that out of Bethlehem will come a ruler who will shepherd the people of Israel And we see that brutality of Herod, who then gives order to kill the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years years old and younger. So innocent babies to be slaughtered, all is not right with the world. And this was a big aha moment for me in my faith journey. Mysteriously, 
God didn't take away the pain and the sorrow and the suffering and the grief in the world at this time, but he entered into it. And God doesn't take away all of the grief and the sorrow and the sufferings I have today, but he is longing, if invited, to enter into it. And that changes everything. And this is the wonder of the Christmas story to me, that with the birth of Jesus, a new joy comes. And that joy doesn't kick grief and sorrow and suffering out the door. Oh, one day it will. But for now, for now, joy becomes a companion to the grief and to the sorrow and to the hardships of life. And over time, joy somehow transforms grief and sorrow and uses it for a greater purpose, creating something more beautiful than I can wrap my mind around. And did you know that this new joy we read about and we see in the Christmas story, it's for us today? Yep. And there are a few elements of this great joy that I see in the Christmas story that I want to touch on briefly this morning. And the first is that it's the joy of God's presence, God with us. In uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and then I'll read verse 14, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so that word there, dwelling, made his dwelling among us, that word originally, the meaning means to set up camp, to put up a tent, to live in a tabernacle. And so when this was written, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. To the people of that day, that made them think of another time in God's history when God set up camp with his people in the desert. In Exodus, God rescues the Israelites from the Egyptians and he goes with them and they have this tent of meeting where God's presence was with them and guided them and led them. And I love how the message paraphrase words verse 14. It says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. So at the birth of Jesus in Luke 2, Jesus moves into the neighborhood and makes his dwelling. He sets up camp, and it's this declaration that the presence of God is here in Jesus, God with us. And with Jesus' birth and then death and then resurrection, our place in history now is that we don't have to look to a central location for the presence and the guidance of God like the Israelites had to look to the tent of meeting or later to the temple. Now, because of Jesus, who told his disciples, it is good I'm going away, because then the spirit of truth, God's spirit, will come to you. 
And John 14, 17 says, the spirit of truth, God's spirit, he lives with you and will be in you. And so now because of Jesus, the presence of God resides not in the tent of meeting and not in the temple, but in God's people. And I love how 2 Corinthians 5, it refers to our bodies, our beings as tents. And so we are now the earthly tents that house the presence of God. I will never get used to that thought. That is mind-blowing to me. And as Pastor Mark mentioned a couple weeks ago, we're just camping. (laughs) We're just camping, and I love camping. But what we need to understand is that as we house the presence of God, we need to understand that God is where joy lives. The presence of God is joy's native habitat. God's presence and joy are inseparable and inside of you and me. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence. 1 Peter 1.8, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Acts 13, 52 talks about how the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And about Jesus in Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And James 1, 2, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, Consider it an opportunity for great joy. What? I just heard like the record scratch in my head. What? Yes, even hardship, grief, sorrow, and suffering, it's an opportunity for great joy. How? Because of the Christmas story. Because of Luke 2. God with us. And God's presence and joy are inseparable. And so when we invite God to take up residence in our hearts and our lives, we become joy's natural dwelling place. Especially in the midst of troubles and grief and sorrow. Because this is what the Christmas story means. For every grief and sorrow and ounce of suffering represented in the room today, it means that God is here And he longs to step into all of those things that feel weighty in our hearts and our minds today. That we would experience the joy of his presence. Henry Nouwen, he says, We are inclined to think that when we are sad, we cannot be glad. But in the life of a God-centered person, sorrow and joy can exist together. And so this is what we need to understand this morning is that to practice joy is not about trying really hard to have a good attitude. To practice joy, it's not about trying really hard to suppress or rid our hearts of sorrow and grief. But to practice joy is about opening ourselves to the presence of God and God's love for us. 
The other day I, I thought of something I haven't thought about in a long time. When I lived in Idaho, I would go on my morning walks with my dog Zuzu. And we would run into this young gal who was about 12-ish in age. And she would be at her mailbox checking her mail. And when she would see us coming down the street heading her direction, she would hesitate. She would stall. It was obvious. <laughs> and she was delaying her task of getting the mail so that she could say hi to my dog, Zuzu. And it would crack me up, because even if we were a ways down the street, she would move so very slowly. <laughs> and wait, giving us time <laughs> to draw near. Because she was anticipating the joys of the cutest, lazy cattle dog in the world. I know I'm biased and the joy of the wagging tail, and the hugs, and the kisses, and the acceptance of Zuzu, and, and this gal's laugh, and her smile, and the joy on her face was priceless. And every time before we parted ways, she would say, maybe I'll check the mail again tomorrow, and see you then. <laughs> and I wonder, are there moments in our days where we miss the depth of joy that is found in God's presence? because we're quickly moving from one task to the next, head down, so focused on the to-do list or, or catching up on social media or scrolling those videos one after another to numb the things in our lives. When in reality, the giver of life desires for us to catch a glimpse of his nearness, that we'd be like that girl on my daily walks with my dog Zuzu, that if we would simply pause and wait, we could experience the very things our hearts are longing for and needing today. So this Christmas season, will we slow down and pause and wait and recognize God's nearness and anticipate and experience the depth of joy in his presence? The second thing about this new joy that we see in the Christmas story is that when we recognize God's presence, we also find deep joy in God's purposes. In the Christmas story and beyond, we see a joy that came as God's people simply recognized God's purposes at hand and then realized they were a part of it, that they were a part of a bigger story do you know that you and I are part of a bigger story? John 3, 16 through 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son to the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And I love the message paraphrase. In verse 17, it says, God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it is. No, he came to help, to put the world right again. Well, we know that not all was right with the world at the time of Jesus' birth, and, and it's easy to look around and assess that in our day, not all is right with the world. And the good news about this is that Jesus came and made salvation available to the world, to you and to me. And when we accept that gift of salvation, we experience this new life 
and unhindered relationship with our Creator, and things are made right in our hearts. And as we become the dwelling place of God, God's intention is not that we would wallow in how bad the world is, and not that we would point an accusing finger to the world telling it how bad it is, but his intention is that we would join him in this great adventure to help, to help the people around us, to love the people around us, that they would experience the overflow of the presence and the joy of God with every interaction they have with us. Many might be familiar with um, Romans 8.28. It's a, a great encouraging verse we might hear a lot in times of difficulty. And we know that in all things, God works for good, for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And some theologians suggest that when you look at the original Greek language and you look at the entire context of this verse, that the Revised Standard Version of this verse might be the best articulation of what Paul intended here. And it reads, we know that in everything God works for good with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Theologian N.T. Wright about Romans 8.28, he says it's about being called for a purpose a purpose that works not just for us, but through us. And we see this throughout both the Old and the New Testaments, God proposing to collaborate with those who love him, to put the world right again. So in our difficulties and our sorrow and our suffering, God isn't just about reworking those things for our good, which he is, but it's beyond that. It's about a greater good. It's about God working with us that those around us would see that we are a people who live differently. And we are a people who grieve differently. We don't grieve like those without hope, says 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Our sorrow isn't hollow, but it is filled with hope. And our suffering isn't pointless, but it ultimately transforms into something beautiful. And this is why Paul is able to say in 2 Corinthians 6.10, our hearts ache, but we always have joy. Or in the NIV, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Or the message, immersed with tears, filled with deep joy. Life isn't easy. But have we found joy in God's purposes, bringing deep meaning to every aspect of our lives as we partner with God to help the world around us? And then lastly, an element of joy we see in the Christmas story is the joy of God's promises. God has a great track record of keeping promises. Scholars say over 300 prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus. And in the Christmas story, we see an expression of joy that comes in believing God's promises. This joy was evident in, in Elizabeth and Mary with their pregnancies and so much joy in Zechariah and his prophetic song in Luke 1 and, and the joy of the shepherds and the joy of Simeon and Anna we see later in chapter 2 in the temple. And all of them expressed a joy that flowed out of believing in the promises of God. And God's word is so full of promises that are applicable to us today. Hebrews 10, 23, 
Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promises. Did you know that Jesus promises that we're already on the winning team? In John 16, I have told you this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. And Jesus promises rest in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. John 3.16 promises that we are loved, for God so loved the world. And I love what Tim Keller said. He said, if we ask why does God allow evil and suffering to continue, and we look to the cross of Jesus, we still don't know what the answer is. However, we know what the answer isn't. It can't be. He doesn't love us. God's love is demonstrated in extravagant ways and God's word promises that we are loved. And I can't remember the reference. Somewhere in here, um, somewhere in here God promises a horse for Christmas. (laughs) Pastor Mark, can you help me? Where was that? (laughs) Oh wait, that's not right. That's not right. Okay, there is no promise of a horse for Christmas. Neither is there a promise for the American dream or a life of comfort or ease or to live trouble-free and to always slay the day. Those things are not promised. But Jesus promises to always be with us in Matthew 28, 20. And in Isaiah 40 is a promise to strengthen us and sustain us But those who trust in the Lord will find a new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Isaiah 41 is a promise for help. In verse 13 it says, For I hold you by your right hand, I, the Lord your God, and I say to you, do not be afraid. I am here to help you. Isaiah 54.10 promises his love will always remain. It says, for the mountains may move and the hills disappear, but even then my faithful love for you will remain. Since the Garden of Eden, Satan's tactics are unoriginal, and it's his tactic to distort God's intentions and his heart for you and for I. And maybe we've heard this thought, in our suffering or in our sorrow or in our grief. If God really loved you, it wouldn't be this way. I will not entertain that lie because of this promise. For the mountains may move and the hills disappear. I may experience sickness and loss and hardship and a natural disaster in my town, but even then God's faithful love remains. We could be here all day reading out the promises of God about his character and his love and his purposes for you and me. And I mentioned to my sister what I was thinking about sharing about this morning, and and she said it reminds me of this vivid image I have of mom. It was the New Year's Eve before she passed, and when most would have been in bed with the door closed, resting, 
Mom got up and was dancing in the living room with her grandkids. My sister said, I have this vivid image of mom doing the Rockettes kick in the living room with the kids. How is my mom able to be a conduit of joy in the midst of suffering? After my mom passed away, we found this binder that I read that she kept by her bed, and and it was full of promises of God written out. Like one page read, God's will for you today in Christ Jesus. Be joyful always. Give thanks in all circumstances. 1 Thessalonians 5. Cast your cares on him, for he cares for you. 1 Peter 7. But it is good for me to draw near to God. Psalm 73. An entire binder of the promises that I know she found joy and strength in. And the people of God in the context of much suffering and sorrow, found joy in the promises of God. What promises do you hold on to and find joy and strength in today? We're all probably longing for the promise of Revelation 21, four through five. It says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. That day is yet to come. And we live in this expanse between the two comings of Christ, the already but not yet of God's kingdom. But in the meantime, he is making everything new. And he's doing it through you and I as we carry God's presence to a hurt and lost world as we are joy's natural dwelling place. He's making everything new, and he's doing it as you and I carry out God's good purposes, as we collaborate with God in bringing his goodness and joy to the world around us. He's making everything new, and he's doing it as we proclaim his promises and announce to a broken world that he is the God who is faithful. And as we make the same declaration of Luke 2, he is here, God with us. So what does the Christmas story mean for the grief and the sorrows and the suffering we experience in this life today? Well, it means everything, and it changes everything, and it means God's presence right here with us, and it means great purpose being brought to every facet of our lives, and it means promises that have been and will be fulfilled. And if we got the best mathematician ever to put all of that in a fancy math equation, It would all equal out to great joy for all people. And so I have this picture in my mind. And maybe you can close your eyes and picture it with me. It's this picture of me holding out my hands in front of me. And maybe you could picture yourself doing the same. And in my hands, I'm carrying these weights, and it's, it's the weight of grief and sorrow and, and the things that feel heavy in life. 
And I keep trying to offload those weights out of my hands and trying to place them elsewhere. But it doesn't seem to matter how hard I try, some of it, not all of it, but some of those heavy things are still there. And in the weariness of what feels heavy in my hands, I see Jesus. Do you see Jesus? And Jesus is drawing nearer. And in his kindness and in his goodness, he does something surprising. Because he doesn't offload those weights. He doesn't remove them. But he steps so close. And he places his hands under my hands, undergirding my hands, supporting and strengthening my hands. The weight is still there, but with my hands resting on top of Jesus's, something new begins to happen in me, and a hope is stirred, and joy is stirred. And I begin to view these things that I'm carrying very differently. You see, the Christmas story doesn't pluck these things I carry out of my hands, but it overlays the grief and the sorrow and the suffering and the things that feel heavy. It overlays them with the reality of God's presence, where there is much joy. And it overlays these things with the reality of a greater purpose where there is much joy. And it overlays these things with the incredible promise of a time when all things are redeemed for good. And in that, there is much joy. And I think, I think that's why uh, the Christmas song, Oh Holy Night, it's, it's always been my favorite. Because there's one line that resonates so deeply in me every time I hear it. It stirs something deep in my heart. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. Will you pray with me? Whatever weights you pictured you're carrying in your hands, God longs to be invited into those things. And in him is a hope and a new kind of joy that can be a breath of fresh air, not just to you, but to the world around you. And so, Father, we just hold our hands out and we know that you draw near and you, you undergird our hands and you strengthen us and, and you rework all of those things, God. Where in the difficulty of life, we can still have joy. We thank you, God, that you are the God who sees. In your word, you're described as the God who sees and you see every one of our hearts and you see every one of our situations and you see every one of our needs. And Jesus, in this season, you long 
to step into those needs and to step into those weary things and, and all those griefs and all the sorrow and all the suffering. And, and you long to bring a joy that's unexplainable. Because it's a joy that comes with your presence and, and it's a joy that's found in your purposes and, and that's found in your promises. And, and so God, for those of us in this moment where our hearts are weary, you, you want to stir a thrill of hope that our weary hearts can rejoice, God. And so I pray that you would open our eyes to see beyond just what is circumstantial or what our, our eyes can see in the natural, Lord. But in this moment, I just pray that you would open our eyes to see beyond and to see what you're doing and to be refreshed by the joy that is found in you, Jesus. Lord, we know that it, it's in your joy, that word verse, that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And so I just pray that we could be a people who leave here and that people would really recognize in a tangible way that we are joy's natural habitat, natural dwelling place, because we are the dwelling place of God. And so I just pray that you would give us opportunity to be an overflow, an expression of that joy that you have for us, God. And so, Lord, we rejoice in who you are, Jesus. We rejoice in your coming, and, and we rejoice that you are the God who is with us. And even if it's in the tears and in the midst of, of hard things right now, Jesus, we thank you that we get to meet you face to face and to see you clearly, Jesus. And so, we just pray that you would take these things about your joy, these truths about your joy, and work them so deeply in our hearts that we would experience the depth of joy that you have for us. And we just pray all of these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. As Pastor Mark comes up, I just want to say one quick little thing is that um, I've recognized that um, pain sometimes is, is intensified in isolation but joy is amplified in God-centered community. And so as we wrap up, if there are things that feel heavy right now for you, I encourage you to share it with someone. And the prayer team's gonna come up in a moment and come have someone pray for you. And if you're, I wanna encourage you, if you're in a place in life, in a season in life, where it feels like joy is abundant and overflowing, be intentional to look for those around you in your daily life to be a reminder of God's joy, the joy of God's presence and purposes and promises to those around you.